This message was recorded live at Life Church Lancashire, a contemporary Christian church in the north of England. Learn more at lifelanks.org. You've landed in part 10 of a series. Ever started the famous, uh, your favorite box set, you know, on episode 10? You might feel a bit lost, but you're going to be okay today. Everyone stands alone, but for 10 weeks now, we've been thinking about transforming practices because this whole year, we're thinking in this community about transformation, and we're asking these questions, how do people change? And we've heard about nine deliberate practices like slowing and simplicity and meditation and celebration that we can engage in, that we can commit to, to bring about change in our life. How do people really change? One of the touchstone scriptures for this whole year as we think about transformation is in Romans chapter 12 and it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. You won't find freedom there, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be changed into a new person by changing the way that you think. The older we get, the more ingrained in our culture and our values and our beliefs and our habits we become. And we have to do that work to actually change the way you think. Unless you change the way you think, your life will never really change. So today, I want to talk about the transforming practice that outside of relationships has shaped me more than anything in life. The transforming practice by which I found the most traction has made the most difference and has enabled me most directly to able to engage with changing the way that I think. And that is the practice of study. The practice of study. Now, some of you are thinking, wow. I don't want to go back to school. I mean, I was so glad to leave that place. You see, we... I've just got back from the States where my wife's family is from, and we have a bit of a different culture in this country. You see, in America, if your school burns down, you cry. But in England, if your school burns down, you cheer. It's a different culture. I remember my last exam as an undergraduate at university. I remember walking down the steps of the exam hall and like this weight lifted off my back and I thought, never doing that again. Well, sure enough, I did go back, you know, a few years later. But it's that feeling and many of us feel like, wow, I don't want to go back. That's behind me. I don't want to get into that. It was never really my thing. I was never really a book learner. But listen, we're invited to study because we study to become. We're not looking just for information. We're looking for transformation. And if you really want that traction in your life, I want to invite you to lean in this morning. You see, we study to become. It says in Hebrews chapter 4 that the Word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It goes on to say it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. There's something unique about Scripture. There's something that in human experience we've found over 2,000 years, that Scripture has this incredible ability to cut to the chase. It judges our thoughts and our attitudes. It's like a mirror before us. It's like a hammer. It can break us or it can mold us. It's like a fire. It can consume us or it can refine us. I love the way that 
Richard Thompson puts it. He says that these texts offer us distinct perspectives about reality and life so that we have a clearer vision of God's will in the midst of a world shaped by a much different vision. That's his commentary on these these verses in Romans. I love that because the reality is our minds are subject to so much pollution. We are told a story every day. We're told a story by advertising. We're told a story by the media. We're told a story by our culture. We're told a story by what everybody else is doing. And often that story is contrary to the best that God has for us. Often it's contrary to the freedom that Christ has invited us into. So what we actually need to do is be conscious about setting before ourselves a different vision. Unless we habitually set before ourselves a vision of greatness, we'll surely degenerate. We'll surely fall back. We'll surely lose our vision, our purpose, our direction towards what God has for us. So we need to lean in. That's what it says in Philippians chapter 4. Whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. See, when we set this vision before us and then we engage with putting this stuff into practice in our lives, we begin to see that transformation for instead of being shaped by just, well, what everyone else is doing around us. We study to become and we study so we can learn from others. Now, let me show you this. We have this text and to Christians, the Bible is scripture to us. And we give it that place of of prominence and importance. But the thing is, no book stands alone. No book is, is mediated, is given to us as some sort of truth that everybody reads the same way. Everybody understands the same way. Any book has to be interpreted. Now, when you think about a book which is thousands of years old, when you think about a book that is written by people who are in a different culture to us, two people who are in a different situation than we're in, than we are in, we have to do even more work there to actually interpret this book, to actually make sense of it. One person reads one verse, says it means one thing. Another person reads it and says it means something else. So actually this, the scripture, the text, the words itself of the 66 books that make up the Christian Bible are not enough. We actually need more than that because we need to be able to come to some sort of interpretation. So what do we do? Well, I believe, and if you believe in a creator, as the Christian tradition does, that God gives us reason. And God gives us the ability to actually read scripture and engage with it, to think about it, to reflect on it, to discuss it, to wrestle with it. God gives us reason. There's got to be a difference between wisdom and madness. There has to be. 
else scripture can, can, can just be taken for, for whatever madness may exist. There has to be a difference. And, and, and the Christian tradition and something that, that allows me to continue to affirm the tradition is Christian tradition has always allowed for reason. Some religions, some belief systems, some uh, ways of thinking are based in superstition. Or they're based in dogma. You can't question it. it it's what it's it's what um, the founder says. It, it's it's what it's what the writings say. It, it, it's the way things are. It's the letter of the law, or it's a superstition about the way things believe. But the Christian tradition has always engaged with scholarship, with discussion, and with debate, and with reason. So God gives us reason to interpret Scripture. But the reality is, we're not only rational, are we? We also have our human experience. Life doesn't just happen in theory. It happens in practice, right? So sometimes we can look at things in theory, but every one of us has had an experience. Every one of us have think, had things happen to us, and that makes us read the Scripture in a different way. The Scripture may say one thing, but this has happened to me. And so what happens is now our reason and our experience begin to dialogue with the Scripture together. But there's one other thing in this system. This was a system that's been observed in many leaders. It was observed famously in, in John Wesley, the Oxford Don and preacher and uh, movement leader. And that is the element of tradition. And tradition means that this, people have read the Bible before me. I'm not the first person to read the Bible. Is it possible that everyone who's read the Bible before me is not a complete idiot? Every one of them is not completely stupid. Every one of them is not totally inferior to me in every way, experientially and intellectually. Is that possible? Well, if it's possible, then you've got to dialogue with this. If you don't have that level of humility, may I kindly suggest another church or maybe another faith or another person to follow. But if we have that level of humility, then we dialogue with this, which means this. Other people have read the Bible before me so I can learn with others. And within tradition, we have our theology uh, and we have our beliefs and our practices in the church. And these help to ground us. And these help us, when we read the scripture, it dialogues with our theology. It dialogues with what we believe. It dialogues with the fact that other people who were just as genuine as us, just as smart as us, maybe a bit smarter, had human experiences just like we do, have actually dialogued with this stuff before. And we have this incredible resource now that we can access and these things talk to each other. And when we study, we study to learn from others. So when we, when we engage with the scripture, all these things work together to help us make sense of it and, and help us engage with what it is. This isn't dogma. This isn't the letter of the law. It's a 
conversation between all these things. Now, people often say, okay, but, and you'll hear this in statements of theology. Let me say a quick moment about this. Yes, but scripture is the final authority in matters of faith. And I understand why they do that, because, for example, if we had all these, these are all in dialogue, people say, yeah, but my experience is this. And you know, one person's subjective experience can easily take us off into error. So we need to be able to question it. We need to say, okay, that's your one person's experience, but that doesn't mean that it's everybody's experience. We need to dialogue with the tradition. Well, what have people been saying about this? What have people been thinking about this over time? So we need to be able to question it. So we say, okay, any of these things can take us into dogma. They can take us into um, away from uh, 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 faith, very reductionist, very materialist. This can lead us into error. But the reality is, even if we make Scripture our final authority, we still need all of these things in conversation to be able to interpret it. And this dialogue is a really powerful thing that helps us to engage with it. Have you ever thought of this? Everything in Scripture, every single word in this book, thousands of words, was written to groups. Not one word in this book was written to an individual. Not one word was penned with the imagination that somebody would sit down by themselves and read it. You ever thought of that? Everything in this book was written to communities. It was written to be heard by communities and to shape communities. To say, hey, don't forget our story. Don't forget what we're a part of. Remember how we should act in a way consistent with the call that we've been given. Every part of this book was written to communities. It was written to be engaged with in a group setting, to be read aloud and then to be discussed and become a document that forms a community. And we can learn from others too. Yes, we can learn from dead guys. And I'm all for that. I spend a lot of time reading dead guys. But there's a lot of great stuff being written today. And there's also people who are sat next to you today who you can learn a lot from. If we actually engage in this stuff with others. And, you know, we also study, and this is the kind of what I want to emphasize today. We're invited to study to discover You see, when we talk about something like study, maybe as opposed to some of our other practices, you know, we talk about celebration thing. I can get on board with that. Celebration, I'm there. What time is the party? I'm ready to RSVP. I will be there. I've got my glad rags ready and pressed and ironed. But, you know, when we talk about something like study, you know, it might sound a bit like work. But this isn't an obligation. This is an invitation. We're studying to become. We're studying because we're invited to change and we're invited to discover. And I really believe there's nothing like it. There's a story from ancient Greece about a king who had a crown made for him out of gold. Or at least he hoped it was made out of gold. He wasn't sure if the smiths who made it were dishonest and perhaps they'd mixed in silver with it. So he set his mathematicians and his scientists the challenge of figuring out whether this crown was made of pure gold or not. 
Now, at the time, the formula that they had for calculating uh, the volume of objects only related to uh, regular objects. They could, they could work out a cuboid. They, they could work out the, the volume of a cylinder. But something like a crown that was irregular was difficult. They knew its mass, but without knowing the volume, how could they calculate the density? And the story goes that one of the mathematicians, Archimedes, one day was sat in the bath. And as he got into the bath, he noticed that the water level rose. And so the story goes, he jumped out of the bath and he ran naked down the street. And he started shouting, Eureka! Eureka, which means I have found it, I have found it. Because he realized that by submerging the crown, what he could do was he could calculate the volume. And sure enough, he did. And sure enough, the Smiths were dishonest and they had mixed in silver with the crown. Eureka. I want to ask you a question. When was the last time when studying the Bible, you go up and ran down naked along your street? If not, why not? Like, I think this should be happening. Okay, okay, let me put it this way. When was the last time you wanted to run naked down your street? Let's just put it that way. You wanted, like something within you. Because like, I think that's what just should be happening. There's nothing like that moment of eureka. My son is learning to do things every day. He's 16 months old now. And he's always doing something new. He's sing- he sang for 45 minutes yesterday. Just by himself, just chilling out singing. It was awesome. Like when he took his first step, like I'm telling people, like he took his first step and they're looking at me like, I can walk. What's the big deal? Like what's the big deal? Like he, he said his first word. I know thousands of words, you know, and when it's someone else's kid, it's not that exciting. But when it's your kid, everything's exciting. You know, when it's someone else's revelation, it's okay. But when it's yours, you know, that feeling, you know, you find something for yourself and you tell your friend, you're like, look what I found, look what I found. And they're like, yeah, it's pretty good. You know, they're just being nice and they're getting on with their day. But for you, it's incredible. There is nothing like that feeling. And, you know, we engage with something. We own it so much more when we find it for ourselves. And it's that moment where you want to shout, Eureka. It's that moment where actually this new level of understanding, it catapults us to a new level of life and freedom because it's revelation. What does revelation mean? It means something's been revealed. What does it mean here in Scripture? It means we've received communication from God. It means we've learned something about the divine, about what life is really like, about the call to greater love, about the call to go to others, about the call to establish God's kingdom here on earth, being part of something meaningful and purposeful in our lives. And when we're called to that, it's like something rises up within us. I can't explain that moment. The thrill of finding something. So this is where Many days of the week, you'll find me. I'm buried in the books because I love that moment. I love that moment of Eureka. I love that moment when I find something. You know, we should be like a scientist, eager to find, forensic, passionate, diligent, Because that level, that moment of understanding, when you get that for yourself, it will take you to a new level. Like pretty much nothing I've found 
When you see God in a way that you never saw him before, it's amazing what that does for us. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And I've talked about why we should study this morning. We don't simply want information. We're not looking to impress others or have letters after our name as if that makes us somehow superior. We want transformation. We want to be changed. We want to be like the one that we worship. We want to be a a better human, which is what being more Christ-like is all about. Jesus is the quintessential human. That's what we want to be. That's why we study We talked about what we studied. We talked about how these things work together. And hopefully by now you're keen to know, how do I do it? How do I get to the point where I can find that I can have those eureka moments for myself and discover it? Well, I just want to start by giving you a few tips this morning. So here's 12 tips. Number one, quiet distractions. You know, when you're doing something that's both intellectually stretching and personally meaningful... Everything else fades out because your brain needs the processing power to concentrate. You can't have all the tabs open in your browser. You can't have your phone in one hand. You can't have the TV on because this is stretching and you need to actually concentrate and lean into it. And when you're passionate about what you're doing, it's amazing how everything else fades away. And we need to find a place. You can't study properly in front of the TV. Number two, pray sincerely. The New Testament encourages that God's spirit is the one that will help us interpret what God is saying. Number three, read repeatedly. We've got to have a regular diet of feeding. You know, many of us, our relationship with the Bible, it's kind of like fast food. And some of us do the daily devotional and, you know, we read a couple of paragraphs. Okay, done. Now, that is a good habit to have. It's certainly commendable, but it's not Bible study. Some of us take a verse and meditate on that verse. Meditation is a really important transforming practice, but it's not study. It's a different thing other than study. And we need to actually, if, if you only go around eating fast food, grabbing food on the run, you know what it starts to do to your health. And just the same, if we don't engage and spend the time preparing, cooking, and slowly eating a large, nutritious meal, we won't really become strong. So we need to have a regular diet, but also when you get into an individual text, read it repeatedly. Read it many times until the words uh, are almost committed to memory. Number four, observe carefully. It's amazing how much we failed to do this. It's usually when we've passed a new shop that's opened about 20 times in the car that my wife will say to me, oh, look, when did that open? We miss things all the time, don't we? We don't observe carefully. There's so much going on. We, we, we tune it out. But when we come to the scripture, in any verse of scripture, you should be able to generate 12 observations. If you can't, go back. Not comments, not applications, not your thoughts. Just observe what is there? 
It's amazing how much is really there. Number five, generate questions. What are the questions you want to ask? What piques your interest? What makes you mad or angry? What are you confused about? What needs to be answered or understood to understand this verse? Number six, reflect thoughtfully. Take the time to think through those questions and think what's really there and figure out what are your assumptions? What are your biases? What do you think about this text? Number seven, come on, you better listen to the podcast so you can write all these down again. Consult resources. This is a time, once you've reflected uh, thoughtfully, this is the time to bring in books, bring in commentaries, bring in Bible dictionaries, Bring in original language tools. Bring in these tools and begin to read them and begin to learn from others. Begin to learn from the tradition. Discover what is really going on. Number eight, interpret contextually. What does that mean? It means this, that we have to discover discover what it meant to them before we can think about what it means to us. Who was this written to? What did it mean to them? Because it does violence to the text to take it so far away from what it meant to them and just say, oh, well, okay, you're more than conquerors. Okay, that, that means I am. But what did that mean? We need to think it through. Number nine, discuss animatedly. I mean, let's be passionate. Let's have a discussion with people. Let's have an openness where if somebody questions your reading, you can discuss animatedly rather than, you know, punching them animatedly. We we can discuss things. We We can get excited. We can have different opinions. We can learn from others. And that can begin to, to question what we believe. Number 10, reevaluate your findings. Based on the resources you found, based on, on how you saw this passage being understood in its original context, based on what others have said, what do you think now? How do your assumptions look different? How do your thoughts look different? Is there anything you want to change? This is where the change begins to happen. And the change continues to happen in these next two steps. Number 11, listen humbly. If we want to be changed, we have to be humble enough to say, okay, God, where are you calling me? Where is this now uncomfortable for me? What are you putting your finger on that I need to hear from this passage? I'm not just understanding this from a dry, scholarly perspective, but I'm listening to the fact that this is being brought to bear in my life. And the final thing, number 12, act accordingly. Because it says in James chapter 1 that, If you hear the word and you don't know what it says, you're kind of like somebody who looks in a mirror and then goes away and immediately forget what they look like, which is a very polite, poetic way of saying you're an idiot. You hear the word, but you don't do what it says. What do you think there's going to be a pub quiz on it? We're reading this for a change, to become. This is why we're reading it. And this is why we discover, and this is why we learn from others, because our goal is to become, to be changed, to be transformed. Is reading and studying the Bible really that big an issue anymore? It's kind of an ancient text. Maybe it's irrelevant. Does it really matter 
in the 21st century? Well, it mattered this week. There's a big news story. It was mainly covered in the States this week. And it was related to the U.S.-North Korea tensions. And we've got a screenshot from the Washington Post of this story. It says this. God has given Trump the authority to take out Kim Jong-un, evangelical advisor says. This is Robert Jeffries. He's the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. And he said this. He said, well, Romans 13 clearly says that Donald Trump has the authority to, to do this. Okay. So let's have a look at the text he's using. So in Romans chapter 13... There's a difficult text. No doubt about it. It says this in verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Okay. Let me skip down to verse 4. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Pretty ominous. So on one side of the debate, we have the fundamentalists, like Robert Jeffries. We have the religious right who say, here you go. It's black and white. I just read it. You can hear exactly what it says. This is God-given authority. And then on the other side, you have the irreligious who say, look at this. We have this antiquated old text. These people are so tied to their book. And look at what it does. We need to get rid of this book. We need to stop listening to this book. Because here we go. This is the kind of thing it does. You heard it. He read it black and white. You heard what it says. This is barbaric. This is out of date. We need to throw this stuff out. We don't want the involvement of religion in our politics. The thing is, neither of these people have engaged with the text. They've just abused the text for the agenda they had beforehand. And the text is irrelevant. They're still standing on the platform they were standing on. They haven't engaged with it. I mean, let's just think about what Robert Jeffries is saying. I mean, let's think about reason. Well, presumably, if no authority except that which God has established exists, that doesn't only apply to Donald Trump, it applies to Kim Jong-un, right? I mean, think about it. Okay, let's think about the the context. Let's, Let's go back. Now, the chapters in the Bible were not put there by the authors. Many hundreds of years later, we felt that it was a a good referencing system in such a large book. So people manually added these. So what we do, we go back a few paragraphs in a letter, in a continuous letter, which is written by an individual to a community. And what do we see if we go over to chapter 12, which is actually just a few paragraphs back in the letter? Well, we see verses like this, and let me just skip through. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless who do not curse. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. 
verse 17 onwards. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with more weapons. Now, wait a minute. Overcome evil with good. This is the context. So what do we do then with these difficult verses? Well, there's the literary context. In other words, what else is in the letter? But there's also the situational context. Paul writes this letter from jail. Probably not going to be too sympathetic to the ruling authorities necessarily. In fact, what does he say throughout this letter and throughout his other letters? He says, Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, he makes a political statement saying, your statues and your songs and your culture says Caesar is Lord. They even call him divine now. But no, no, we have a different master. We have a different leader. And he he gives this political dynamite message that no, 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 there's another Lord. People were killed for less. And here's Paul in prison. So this is what Paul says about authorities that are abusive. This is what Paul says about powerful military empires. This is what Paul says that Jesus is Lord. But then he comes to this and he speaks to a people who are persecuted, who are crushed, who are small, who are in the minority, who who are marginalized in society whose businesses are struggling because the people are being told to disassociate with these followers of the way. And here we are in the West. I mean, Paul writes to people subjugated by this dominant military power, the only military superpower in the world. And then we have a man in Dallas, Texas, who is a citizen of the only military superpower in the world, thinking he can read this text without contextualizing it, without interpreting it. What's Paul saying here? Paul's saying this, look, Jesus is Lord, but now is not the time for violent revolution. So you might think, well, Jesus is Lord, I'm going to stop paying my taxes. And Paul says, no, now's not the time to stop paying my taxes. You might think, Jesus is Lord, let's start burning down buildings. Paul says, no. He says, look, When he says they don't bear the sword for no reason, he's saying, look, this isn't indiscriminate. We don't have Roman soldiers going around going, "Uh, that one, that one, her, she looked at me funny. Um, Everyone with green eyes, you know, it's not indiscriminate. What are they trying to do? They're trying to further their agenda. So if you're going to get in trouble with the authorities, it's going to be for a reason like public disorder, not paying your taxes, You know, these kind of things. There's going to be a reason. So listen, if you want to live under the radar as a creative minority, this is the time for that. Now is not the time for violent revolution. Now is not the time to play the game the way they play it. Now is not the time for guerrilla warfare because it is possible for you to live in this society without being hurt in that way because they're not indiscriminately killing people. They have a reason behind it, protecting their version of the peace. 
So it's amazing the difference when we actually allow these things to come into play. We didn't even talk about our theology. We didn't even talk about God who is love and how Jesus displays that on the cross. We didn't even talk about how Jesus is the victim of violence, not the perpetrator of violence. We didn't even talk about any of these things. But it, it shows you that this is a live issue. This is making headlines all over the world today interpreting the Bible. And we have to actually be schooled in it. And we actually need to speak in our culture. So the voices, which may sound right, that say, let's throw out this book, let's get rid of this book, let's ignore this book, uh, don't win out. We need to speak for saying, no, let's all engage thoughtfully with this book, because this book can actually bring about the kind of change that we want to see in the world. Discover more about us at lifelanks.org and stay inspired by subscribing to the podcast via iTunes. Thanks for listening.